Welcome to episode four of the Disability Perspectives podcast. My name is Utah Kirshner. We are extremely grateful for all of the support we have received for the podcast so far. We'd love for you to continue sharing us with your friends and helping to reach as many people as possible with the goal of normalizing the conversation around disabilities. If you have filled out our Google form and have not heard from us yet, we appreciate your patience as we have received lots of interest. You can find the Disability Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please follow us on Facebook at disability.perspectives, on Twitter at dp underscore podcast one, and on Instagram at disability.perspectives. We are aware that some users are having trouble listening to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. We are aware of this and working on it. Thank you for your patience. If you are interested in seeing the transcript for today's episode, please follow the link in the episode description. Today we sit down with Dr. Carolyn Shivers, Associate Professor in Human Development and Family Studies at Virginia Tech. Dr. Shivers has years of experience working with disabled individuals, teaching and researching disabilities, and she is excited to share with you about her experience as a researcher and her own disability experience. We hope you enjoyed today's episode as we continue our goal of normalizing the conversation. This episode is dedicated in memory of my grandma's late husband, Tom Kirshner. Tom passed away on Wednesday, February 3rd. He was 80 years old. Tom was someone who had a disability and would have been a future guest on the Disability Perspectives podcast. He was energetic, always on the go, and his quick-wittedness never went unnoticed. In the close to five years he and Grandma were married, he quickly became someone very special to our family, and while we are saddened by his loss, we rejoice in the hope that we will see him again one day. Please enjoy this episode in memory of Tom. Okay, so Dr. Shivers, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell me a little bit about, um, or a lot about, where you're from, where you grew up, where you went to college, all of it, what you're interested in doing, all of those things. Yeah, uh, my name is Dr. Carolyn Shivers. I'm originally from Northeast Ohio. So if you know the area, I grew up near Canton. If you don't know the area, we're about an hour and a half south of Cleveland. I did my undergraduate studies at the University of Notre Dame, where I studied, majored in psychology and minored in vocal performance and the Glynn Family Honors Program, which counted as a minor. And then I went to Vanderbilt University in Nashville for my master's and my PhD in developmental psychology and minored in statistics, because you can get a PhD minor. Who knew? I did not. I didn't either until they told me, and I'm like, yeah, I'll take one of those. So I, yeah, I'm interested. I love reading. I love travel and I love my family. I have 10 nieces and nephews and we are currently sitting in my office surrounded by pictures of them and pictures that they've made for me. So nice. I also, side note, I didn't realize that you had a music background. That is, I did not know that at all. So that's very interesting. It actually kind of makes me happy that we've known each other for two years and you don't know that about me because I feel like I'm one of those obnoxious people that tries to sing whenever I can. So I do remember last year when we listened to Christmas music and you were talking about singing in the choir and all of that. So I, I do remember that, but I didn't know it was something you'd studied. Yeah. Um, so 
your current position here at Virginia Tech, what what does that encompass? What do you what do you do? Do you tell tell me about it? So my current position has a really long and obnoxious title. I am an assistant professor in human development and family science and the director of the Pathways Minor in Disabilities Studies. I'm also an affiliate of the Virginia Tech Center for Autism Research. So what does that mean? That means that my job is supposed to be 50% research. So I'm supposed to spend half of my time doing research and then it's I want to say like 25 to 30% teaching and then the rest of that time is service. So that's being on committees, um, going to meetings, doing work, stuff like that. And as the director of the Pathways Minor, I am the advisor for every student in the minor and we now have over 150 current students enrolled. Exciting. Officially the largest Pathways Minor at Virginia Tech. So that makes me pretty proud. And so I advise all the students. I have I communicate with all of the other instructors in the minor, as well as their department heads for all of the departments that are involved because it's interdisciplinary. Every year I have to fill out paperwork to update the curriculum and the check sheet, etc. And then I designed both the intro course and the capstone course for disability studies, and I teach those every semester. Okay, exciting. So you have quite a lot on your plate. It's, yes, there, there are a lot of things that are officially my responsibility. That's, that's exciting. I mean, that, that's a lot, but that's also exciting to think about at the end of the year, like look back at all the things that you've done. I bet it feels accomplishing anyway. Um, so part of, part of what you do is research. So um, let, let's talk a little bit about that. What areas of research do you specialize in? What kind of things do you look at? What do you learn about? What, what things do you do? Yes, so my primary area of research is uh, studying siblings of individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And that's what I've done for many, many years. More recently, I have sort of branched out into studying siblings of individuals with any type of disability from any perspective. So the sibling has a disability, uh, the sibling doesn't have a disability, but one of their siblings has a disability. And a lot of what I look at is stress and the sibling relationship. So compared to siblings of individuals who don't have any disability, what do sibling relationships look like in dyads where there is a disability and what does stress look like? So what is what are some of the impacts of disability on the family system from that sort of peer sibling perspective? Okay. It's interesting that you've said the word perspective multiple times since the podcast is called Disability Perspectives. That's pretty appropriate. Um, but yeah, um, no, interesting. I remember doing the uh, taking part in the study that you did that you're working on. When uh, I did still the, collecting data. Still for, collecting yes. data for yeah. yeah, and that that was interesting. I'm always intrigued by how the things that I do in the study can tell you a lot about other things that are related. So that's interesting for sure. Um, so what drew you to the specific area of research? So I grew up around people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. My mom is one of six children and her youngest brother, my uncle Dan, has Down syndrome. So I've, I've always knew people with, or at least one person with an intellectual and developmental disability. Mm -hmm. So in addition to that, because mom is one of six siblings, I was interested in not only her experience, but 
all of her other brothers and sisters' experiences. So how is mom's experience as the oldest daughter different from my Uncle Pete's experience as the oldest son, different from Aunt Janie's experience as the youngest who's closest in age to Uncle Dan? Like, mm -hmm. how do all of those different factors um, interplay into their experience growing up? And not necessarily as a negative thing or as a stressor like my mom's family is awesome i love hanging out with them they're all very involved in dan's life they're all very good at communicating and i know that's not the experience for all families so what what are some of the things about my mom's family that contributed to such a close successful caring set of sibling relationships and how can we potentially transfer those factors to other families who maybe aren't doing as well? Gotcha. And it sounds like you're from a pretty, pretty large-sized family. Big family. So big, my big mom's family. one of six. I'm one of nine. Mm -hmm. um, my biological dad is one of eleven. Like I said, I've got ten nieces and nephews. So that this idea of siblings, like I, I love having a ton of siblings. I love mm -hmm. having a ton of aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews. So studying, again, those sort of like peer family relationships. Yeah, and I like, I know that families where there's not a disability involved, there's lots of, there's lots of things that play into how siblings get along, whether they're, I mean, for instance, my brother and I, aside from the fact that we have a disability, I mean, we're the same age, but then my sister and brother, there's 11 years between us and our brother and 13 between us and our sister. So aside from having a disability, like there's different family systems issues there just because of our age difference, much less the fact that you throw in a disability. So uh, I can only imagine how much more that adds to it when there is a disability um, also affecting those relationships too. Exactly. I mean, I have I have a different relationship with every single one of my brothers and sisters mm -hmm. and, and that's natural. So what does that look like both on like a dyadic level, so between two siblings as well as on a more systemic level within a family? when there is a disability present and depending on the type of disability that a person has. Exactly. Um, so how long have you been doing this research? So I have been doing human behavioral research for, oh gosh, 9, 11, 13, 15 years maybe. Mm -hmm. In undergrad, I started working in a lab in the psych department that studied children of parents with mental illness or psychiatric disability. I didn't end up getting to work on that project. We worked on more um, marital discord work in general. So what happens when, when uh, parents fight? And then when I did my senior honors thesis, I had the chance to work with a data set of mothers of children with autism spectrum disorder. So that was sort of my first experience doing research of my own with families of individuals with disabilities and then that also became my very first publication so like oh, nice. if, you go, if you go to google scholar that one from 2000 it was published in 2009 but that was my senior honors thesis gotcha from so, you're, Notre Dame. so you're definitely not new to this anymore i'm not new to this <laughs> and even like sitting here listening and thinking like gosh how long it's been i'm like oh my goodness i've been doing this for a minute <laughs> yeah no doubt um yeah but then siblings specifically when I went to interview at grad school, um, I met with who would then become my advisor and she asked me this beautiful question. She said, if you could study anything in the world, like 
regardless of advisor, money, time, whatever, what would you study? And, and I said, siblings. I would absolutely love to study siblings of individuals with disabilities. And she said, okay, we can make that happen. And that's what I've done ever since. That's exciting because a lot of times people struggle for a really long time to figure out exactly what they want to do. So that you were able to figure that out pretty early on is, is kind of, I bet that's kind of refreshing for you, I bet. It is. Able to figure it out and able to have the support to actually do it. Because yeah, those are two different realms. <laughs> very different, yes. <laughs> um, so with that research that under your belt that you've done already now, um, sort of what are your plans in the future? What do you want to move, what do you want to focus on next? Like what are your future areas of interest to, to, to research on? Yes. So again, currently I'm collecting data on siblings of individuals with psychiatric disability, again, different perspectives. So what happens when one sibling has mental illness or when both siblings have mental illness, etc. Ultimately, my, my dream where I hope to get within the next few years is to study the impact of ableism on the sibling relationship. So historically, when studying individuals with disabilities, the focus is on that individual. So what is the severity of their disability? And I'm doing air quotes. Um, what, what are their, again, quote unquote, behavior problems? What is it about that person that impacts the family relationship? What I want to look at is what are the impacts of society? So we, when you think of the social model of disability, that idea is it isn't about what the person can or can't do. It's about the limitations of society. So if all information in society was available in simultaneously um, visual, auditory, and tactile input, then deaf-blind and deaf-blind individuals would still be able to participate fully in society because nothing would require only vision or only hearing, etc. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the social model. So and that impacts people with any kind of disability. So people with intellectual disability, people with psychiatric disability. So how do these expectations, particularly stigma, so what non-disabled people think and how they act around disabled people, but also just general barriers to full participation. So inability to go certain places, to go on vacation, to get a job, to go to school, etc. How did those kind of barriers impact not only the disabled individual, but their siblings as well? Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've talked about what you're researching right now. Now we talked about what you want to research in the future. Looking back, what sort of, whether you think back to high school or college or even before that, what sort of inspired you to, um, to, to do the research that you're doing? What inspired you to spend your entire adult life doing research and studying this sort of specific field? Yeah, so it was, I've been a very, very lucky person in that I've kind of flown by the seat of my pants and it's worked out really well. <laughs> so I, I never wanted to do research. Like if you'd, if you'd asked me in middle school and high school, even in college, like, what do you want to do? I wouldn't have said research. I knew I wanted to go into psychology. Mm -hmm. Like since the fourth grade, when I learned the difference between psychology and psychiatry, mm -hmm. uh, psychiatry is a medical pharmaceutical field, psychology, um, basically psychologists don't prescribe medicine. It's more subtle than that, but that's yeah. the general difference. I'm like, okay, I want to do psychology. So 
So I focused on, you know, getting to college and studying psychology. Simultaneously, I was working with individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. In addition to my uncle Dan, when I was in high school, I volunteered at a preschool for kids with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and that was great. In college, for three summers, I worked at a summer camp for people of all ages with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So by the time it was time for me to apply to graduate school, I knew, okay, I wanna to go to developmental psychology programs and I want to work with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So that's actually a pretty narrow range. Mm -hmm. Most disability programs are not in developmental psychology. They're in special education or they're in rehabilitation counseling, mm -hmm. something that's seen as a more disability specific field. Yeah. But I was able to find an awesome advisor in developmental psychology who worked with people with IDD. And then she's the one that said, "What if you could study anything, what would it be? And mm -hmm. I said, siblings. And then I got to grad school in my first year and I actually started doing more of my own research. And I learned that I loved it mm -hmm. because one of my favorite things in the world is knowing more than other people. <laughs> I'm very arrogant. <laughs> and what is research other than besides learning things that nobody else knows yet. <laughs> so it's like, this is great. I get to be the first person in the world to know these things and then yeah. I get to share it with other people. So yeah, it turns out I really, really like research and getting to do it in the psychology field and with a population that I have a lot of experience with mm -hmm. and care very deeply about it. I'm very, very fortunate that's that's really cool and i i have to tell you that you reminded me of my sister when you said that um when you said that you like knowing things that other people don't know because i can remember when i was little and um i would my sister's i mean she's 13 years older than me so she had yeah. a big hand in raising my brother and i pretty yeah. much she babysat and all that and she would she would say something and one of us would say how do you know that or or whatever and her answers was always her answer was always because i know everything and so uh, when you said that you like knowing things that other people don't know, um, that kind of reminded me of, of my sister when I was growing up. So that was kind of, was kind of a little bit nostalgic there. That's um, extra funny because my, like if people, if my nieces or nephews mm -hmm. especially say like, oh, you know everything or how do you know so much? Or especially if they say like, you know everything, I'll say not yet. That's, <laughs> One that's my goal. Omniscience is my ultimate goal in life, but not yet. <laughs> and your sister and I are virtually the same age. Like mm -hmm. she, um, you said she graduated in 2005, I graduated in 2004. So I feel like your sister and I would get along. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think you guys would get along. <laughs> um, and then the, the flip side of that, when we were little, um, five and six years old every five and six year old has a million questions and so when we would anytime we she'd get tired of us asking questions she's like are you ever going to stop asking questions <laughs> and our response was always when we know everything like you we'll stop asking you questions yes good answer <laughs> so, um yeah we uh that, that was always a fun time but um so in studying and researching siblings of people with disabilities what's been some of your most shocking findings so what's research that you've done or what things have you found that's sort of blown you away or really I guess rekindled the spark in you for what you're doing and not to say that like the spark of what you're doing ever went out but like what things have really excited you yeah so you're absolutely right in saying that the the spark has never gone out because i've never gotten tired of significant findings mm -hmm. like research findings every single time just make me so happy there's the statistical program i use is called spss and in some of the analyses that you run it will 
designate significant findings with little asterisks. And I say I never get tired of seeing those little asterisks. <laughs> it just makes me so happy. Um, so there are, there are a few things that are really exciting for me. One is confirming your hypothesis. So when you go into research thinking like, okay, I think this is what's going to happen, and then the results actually confirm that, mm -hmm. that is super cool. You're like, actually, I already knew that. <laughs> that. Right? Like, I was right, and this <laughs> proves that I was right, and I love being right. Um, what The very first study that I conducted uh, wholly at Virginia Tech, so when I, I moved here and started research here, was a survey for adolescent siblings of individuals with autism spectrum disorder or Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I hypothesized that siblings of individuals with ASD would report more stress than siblings of indiv individuals with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And that ended up being the case with this sample. And I was doing the analyses over Thanksgiving break, back home in Ohio, sitting in the Starbucks back there, and I ran the analyses, and it was significant, and it supported my hypothesis, and I was so excited. And I texted a friend of mine from um, undergrad, who she and I were in the psych program together, and I'm like, oh, I, I, my hypothesis was correct. I'm so excited. She's like, that's awesome. I'm pregnant. I'm like, oh, well, all right. <laughs> Steal my thunder, but okay. Yeah. Um, and I love, I love her kids. They're great. So, yes. And then in terms of findings that were unexpected from that same survey, in addition to these overall differences, so siblings of ASD reported um, significantly greater levels of general stress than siblings of individuals with Down syndrome, mm -hmm. but there was an interaction, and I'm going to try to describe this verbally because I always I show it visually <laughs> with my hands, in that siblings of individuals with Down syndrome reported more stress if their sibling had more challenging behaviors. So if there was more aggression, more tantrums, things like that. Mm -hmm. For siblings of individuals with autism, the challenging behaviors didn't make a difference. Siblings of individuals with autism reported roughly the same levels of stress, or so high stress regardless. The Down syndrome siblings only reported high stress if their brother or sister had a lot of challenging behaviors. So that to me was really fascinating and it suggests to me that, okay, it really, it's not always about the individual. So what is it about autism and about society's treatment and views of autistic individuals that are creating or contributing to stressful family environments? Okay. Um, one thing with, with when you're doing research, do you ever, do you ever have situations where either what you find is not just not significant, but maybe your study proves something completely different than what you were even going for. Or um, you had something where you were researching one thing and based on the findings of one survey or one study, um, it kind of completely redirected where you were going with what you were trying to do, or it kind of presented you with a whole new question and put whatever you were trying to do on a, on a back burner or something. Has that happened to you? Yes, 100%. Um, starting in grad school, I did my master's thesis on guilt, and I had spoken to some friends of mine in, in undergrad, in college, and I said, okay, I'm studying siblings of people with disabilities, and they, sort of two different people sort of said, like, oh, you should, like, study guilt, like, mm -hmm. does the non-disabled sibling feel guilty? Now, this might very well be because I went to a Catholic university, and Catholic guilt is totally a thing. <laughs> 
Um, but I looked at that for my master's thesis. So I wanted to continue studying that for my dissertation. So I went out and I interviewed 10 different families. So five families of children without disabilities and five families of children with disabilities and interviewed uh, both the parents and the siblings separately. And instead of finding evidence for guilt, what I found was that even though I interviewed them separately, the children's responses matched the parents. So if the parent talked about like sort of how challenging disability was and how many barriers they encountered, then the non-disabled siblings would be more likely to say like, yeah, it's not that great, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Whereas if the parents spoke in a more like balanced and positive tone, like, yeah, you know, some things are hard, but it's, it's really great, I love it then the siblings were more likely to say like, oh yeah, there are great things. Mm -hmm. And I specifically asked a question of the siblings. I said, what, what benefits are there? Like what's good about having a brother or sister with disabilities? And one kid right away goes, you get to the front of the line at Disney World. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> well, like, that's, all right, something. that's a thing. <laughs> yeah. and, and then he continued, he's like, no, there, there are other great things. But like he had an answer right mm -hmm. away. Other siblings that I asked explicitly said like, I can't think of anything. Mm -hmm. And those answers seem to match their parents. So for my dissertation, I then measured how parental optimism and life satisfaction seemed to predict uh, sibling perceptions of their their brother or sister or sibling with a disability. And that's not what you were planning on nope. writing your dissertation nope. about, was it? wasn't what I was going to do. Nope. <laughs> I was just, um, I just had... I'm in psych dis dis psychological disorders of children. I'm in yes. that class this semester, and we were just talking about this morning. Um, we were talking about play therapy, mm -hmm. and what was interesting was um, the woman that um, we watched a video of like a, a actors, and they were displaying kind of the play therapy thing. And this this little girl had, had was having an outburst about something, and the woman comes over, and the woman's really calm about it, and she's consistent, and she's patient, and she's mellow. Um, and she is very patient with the little girl and the girl very quickly mirrored that yep. that thing. And that's one thing when my teacher this morning asked, um, what did you guys get from this? I, I sort of said, I was like, you know, what I noticed was how the child mirrors the behavior. It's it's almost like a monkey see monkey do, but in real life, like, yep. and I imagine this is the same case there that you noticed was, was based on how the parents reacted. Really, kids really do watch their parents yes. and they really do. Um, because that's kind of their example of what's normal, what's right, what's how you respond to things. Exactly. So that's just what they do. Yes. So that's, like, that's interesting. What do, what do we think about this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so in addition to your research, we talked a lot about that now, you've also now spent a considerable amount of time teaching. Um, how have you been able to connect your research to your teaching? So not nearly as much as I thought I was going to be able to. Mm -hmm. So because my teaching responsibilities are disability studies, which means, especially in my intro class, I am tasked with teaching about all aspects of disability in one semester. Mm -hmm. That's impossible. And <laughs> <Well aware. laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't leave a lot of space for something as sort of nuanced as siblings of individuals mm -hmm. with disability. We talk about it a little bit, but, but there's not time to go into there's not there. time to go into it because you're talking about models of disability. You're you're giving examples. Um, you're certainly sharing uh, stories from disabled individuals themselves. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually think it's been more of the reverse that my teaching and what I have learned and experienced and 
researched to better improve my teaching of all disability has influenced my research mm -hmm. and hopefully made my research more inclusive and and really informed some of the questions and some of the populations that I examine in my research. Yeah, because I feel like just teaching a class, like that's almost research in itself because you get such a diverse group of students every semester. Yes, yeah, and especially with leading the minor, like it's not just me teaching one class. Mm -hmm. I'm working with and supervising all of these other instructors who all have their own perspectives on disability. Mm -hmm. So I get to learn from them as well. Uh, so the whole thing's a learning experience yes. for you. Um, yeah, and I just to speak to what you said about it being impossible to cover everything about disabilities in the semester, I just think about just yesterday when we were in class and we spent, I was just telling my roommate that we spent the entire class on one slide just because there was so much, like you could, I feel like you could teach an entire semester on, on just the models of disability or just on disability history or just on yep. each of the topics that we spend maybe a class on you could teach a whole semester on. So Yes. I say that all the time that every single topic we cover in the intro class could in and of itself be an entire class. Mm -hmm. And it's extra funny that we only covered one slide on Tuesday because just the week before on Thursday, we only covered two slides. And I'm like, oh, we, we only covered two slides today. And then the class is like, watch this. We'll, <laughs> we'll only do one. Yeah. I imagine though, um, I bet for you as a teacher though, knowing that you can't possibly cover everything in one semester, I bet it's... I bet for you, there's kind of a level of like, you know what, I'm okay with just getting through one slide if everybody's engaged and learning and understanding it and asking questions. Like people were genuinely interested. And so I bet for you, it's kind of just like, you know what, if we only get through one topic this semester, it will be a conversation well had. It will. My only hesitation with that is that I don't want to make the students nervous. So mm -hmm. I do have a syllabus and I have a schedule and yeah. I know there are students that look at that schedule and and take it as gospel like yeah. okay but but we have to get to this mm -hmm. we don't we really don't there are no tests there are no exams like it it does not matter if we only cover this one topic for the whole semester and i have to make sure i'm communicating that to the students yeah. so that when we get quote unquote behind they know that mm -hmm. we're not behind this isn't we're learning what you all need to learn in this yeah. situation um and in terms of being behind we pretty much start off behind like <laughs> like there's so much to learn we'll never yes. get to it all yeah um so in, in terms of teaching what's been the most rewarding part about teaching undergrad students um and then what has been the hardest part yeah so the the hardest part for me i'll start with the the latter has been other faculty and not all other faculty i mean mm -hmm. i don't i don't mean to sound that negative but because I do so much work with all the other disability instructors in the minor and a lot of work with SSD, so Services for Students with Disabilities, and I'm on a lot of like accessibility and accommodation panels and working groups, I spend a lot of time around like-minded people. So then when I encounter faculty and instructors who are either not super into or they're outright against the idea of providing accommodations mm -hmm. it throws me off mm -hmm. and and it makes me so defensive even you know among people who should know better i've been in conversations with faculty who are very inclusive for other things in terms of like gender and sexuality and then i've heard those exact people say oh, but accommodations are a burden. Mm -hmm. 
like it where's where's the disconnect there yeah. that you can see the need for inclusion of this one population but not for this other population so that's been really hard for me mm. again because i'm very defensive i'm not i'm not a good ally in that situation because i'm not patient mm -hmm. i my reaction is to be like no you're wrong you suck <laughs> um but you're not supposed to say that to other people they don't respond very well um the most rewarding part has really been so much like almost everything else i never thought i would enjoy teaching i was convinced i was never going to be a teacher because i thought of a teacher as like a high school or middle school teacher where the vast majority of your job is classroom management mm -hmm. Not only do I get to teach college students, I get to teach an elective. So for the most part, you all want to be there. You choose to be there. And that is such a gift. Mm -hmm. And then, like you were saying, I, I just get to follow the students' engagement. So when students ask good questions or we're having a great conversation or they're engaged and and they bring in other examples like what about this i have students email me and see say oh i saw this movie or i read this book or mm -hmm. i witnessed this thing and i thought it was cool students who contact me after they graduated and say you know hey i was thinking of you i thought of this thing it's it's so rewarding it's mm -hmm. so enjoyable i much like the little asterisks on SPSS, <laughs> I never get tired of it. Yeah, it's one of those things that makes you feel like you, what you've been doing is worthwhile. Yes, Makes you yeah. feel like you've made some sort of an impact. No, I definitely get that, because even, like, in sort of a similar way, I mean, obviously, I'm still an undergrad student, so I don't teach or any of that, but, um, like, as a Hokie ambassador, when I give, I, I had someone, um, I had someone come do a tour, and at the end of the tour, they were like, classic, like, thanks for giving us a tour, yada, yada, whatever, and then the mom comes up to me afterwards, and said, hey, I just want you to know that my son just picked Virginia Tech over another university, like, after tour. And it's just those things that make you feel warm and fuzzy inside, and you're just like, oh my gosh, that was, like, yes. I, I did that. That's that's really cool. And Absolutely. So, it's, um, the, it's the living embodiment of the starfish story. Like, you know, yeah. the guy goes along to the sea, and there's all the starfish washed up, and the guy's throwing them back. Mm -hmm. And he says, you can't possibly make a difference. There's too many. And then the guy responds, it made a difference to that one. Like, it, yeah. it really only takes one. Mm -hmm. And and you you kind of it, you have to remind yourself of that like oh exactly like you said oh I I did that I contributed to that wow this is really cool and I bet too is it there's probably a level of like feeling sort of rewarding for you too when you see um, like further on down the line when you've taught a student and then they go on to do things they go on to do research and and or they go on to create this or they go on to be really impactful in their field and you're just like wow. I, that, they're like my children. I like I taught them. Yes, I bet that's exciting too. One hundred percent. It's and and then it reminds me to like go back to my advisors mm -hmm. and and stay in touch with them yeah. and be like, no, you had this impact on me. And look at all these students that exactly. I impacted, that you yeah. impacted. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's exciting. I definitely like. I'm excited to get to a point in my career where I can do that same sort of thing. Yeah. Because I know that that kind of makes it all worthwhile. It's, there's, there's a funny aspect of research where we refer to our research lineage. Mm -hmm. So like our advisor and then their advisor. Mm -hmm. So we refer to it as like our research grandparent, mm -hmm. like our parent and grandparent. And just within the past year, I've been working with a faculty member who's now at Oklahoma State and uh, they were a grad student here and I was on their committee. So I was their advisor and now 
they're advising students and the first time I met with them and their students, the students like, oh, so you're my research brand mentor. <laughs> and I'm like, that's, wow, I was not prepared for that. Okay. You go home and like pluck out gray hairs. This is great. This is great. That's funny. Um, so with obviously like when you're teaching and when you're doing research and everything, like a lot of it's really good and a lot of it's really rewarding, but I imagine there's times when um, it's not always that way. And there's definitely times when you feel like you just want to pull your hair out. So has there been a point during your time in academia when you experienced sort of a burnout or you felt overwhelmed or that you uh, maybe had thought you had too much on your plate or anything like that? Like what's your experience been in that sort of realm? Yes. So my, the most difficult times for me have been dealing with the system of academia. Mm -hmm. Academia, higher education is a ridiculous system. Most systems are. <laughs> um, so there are a, a friend of mine who's now at uh, Michigan Tech, but she was a, a postdoc here for a while. She and I used to tell students that systems don't care about you. People within those systems may care about you, but systems don't. Mm -hmm. So that's really hard hard for me to wrap my head around a lot of times. This idea that there are individual things that are going really well in terms of research and teaching, and yet they all exist in this giant capitalist machine mm -hmm. whose really only, at the very least, primary goal is to make more money. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten feedback um, both implied and explicit that my job here is not to um, promote acceptance or increase understanding of disability or add to the general knowledge of disability through my research, but to make more money for the university system, mm -hmm. to get more students in my class because that's how we make money is, mm -hmm. is butts in seats, basically. Yeah. So it's it's not necessarily that I have more on my plate than I can handle. I mean, we all we all do at this point in time. There's <laughs> nobody's nobody's plate <laughs> big enough. Um, but it's that I, when I come up against those sort of systemic ideas, I can sometimes feel overwhelmed with the system versus like what I'm doing personally. Mm. Now the other prong of that, the other aspect of that is within disability studies as a field, I was not trained in disability studies. Mm -hmm. I was trained in developmental psychology. And disability studies as a field is an established academic field and they have their own vocabulary and language and mm -hmm. uh, beliefs and way of thinking about things. So for me to be hired into this position, not having training in disability studies, there were several, are several members of the disability community who were at best pretty skeptical about my hiring um, and the language that I use and the type of research that I do. So learning from that world and learning to incorporate that into my work mm -hmm. and try to do right by this field and this disability community mm -hmm that's also been really challenging because you don't want to feel like an interloper. You don't want to feel yeah. like, okay, I'm, I'm overstepping. I'm, um, I'm white savioring like this, yeah. this whole field. So when those kind of mismatches happen, 
um, either with, you know, people in the disability community or with the system of higher education as a whole, I, I really go back to, like we were saying, with the students and, and with the people that I work with. So when people say, um, oh, I had never thought of that before. Like, that's, that's a new perspective for me. Those kind of things matter. Mm -hmm. I'm a really big proponent of do, with you, do what you can with what you have. Mm -hmm. So it's not any single person's job to do everything to change the world. Mm -hmm. We do what we can with what we have. So I have a platform for teaching. I have no fear of public speaking, so mm -hmm. I can take those skills and that platform and those opportunities and do what I can to encourage inclusion and acceptance and try not to screw it up too bad, try to make a difference even if it's a small one. So it seems like a lot of times when it comes to being overwhelmed or having too much on your plate, it's, it's less about the quantity of things on your plate and more about the quality of those things. And so it, it's less about how many things do I have to get done this week? How long is my to-do list? And more about are those things that I have to do, grading papers and talking to students and teaching people, mm -hmm. or are those things dealing with bureaucracy and dealing with administration and dealing with people who don't agree with me? So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's more about it's more about what those things are and not how many yes. of them there are. 100%. Gotcha. I am, I'm not a perfectionist, mm -hmm. not even a little bit. There was one of the labs I worked in had written on the whiteboard, finished is better than perfect. So when I'm teaching, when I'm preparing class materials, when I'm writing articles, when I'm doing things like that, I am not the type of person that's like going down to every last detail and trying to make sure it's perfect. I approach it more as like, okay, here's something, it's something, we will work with it. I'm going to submit it. I'm going to teach it. And then mm. I will I will be open to feedback. Yeah. And, and it can always be changed and adapted and made better. It can always be changed. So that, you're absolutely right. It's not a timing thing for me. It's about what I'm doing and who I am working with and who I, I don't want to say who I have to convince because mm -hmm. that's, that's not the right angle. But how much disagreement and the valence of that disagreement mm -hmm. that that I have to work within. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's kind of a perspective I hadn't really heard before on, on that sort of question. We hope that you have enjoyed today's conversation so far with Dr. Shivers. We'll return to it shortly. If you like what you have heard, we would love to hear from you. Please leave us a review on Anchor or on any of our social media pages. If you are interested in being a part of the Disability Perspectives podcast, including as a member of our team or as a guest on the show, please fill out the Google Form link in our About section or on any of our social media pages. It will also be linked in the description for this episode. You can also email us at disability.perspectives at gmail.com if you have any questions or would like to share with us. Lastly, if you like the podcast and want to ensure that it continues, we will be appreciative of financial support. We're not trying to profit from this work, but we are college students. So our goal is to only offset the price of production. If you're interested in partnering with us in any way, please feel free to reach out to us. My name is Paulina. I am a junior at Virginia Tech. 
studying biomedical engineering and entrepreneurship. I enjoy to spend time with my friends, fill my apartments with plants, read, enjoy the outdoors, and discover new places. I'm very thankful for the start of this podcast for which I help manage the social media pages. The podcast continues to broaden my view and understanding of various perspectives on disabilities, and I hope it does so for you. Never return to today's episode. This next question is going to sort of segue us into a little bit more about your personal experience with disability. So um, it'll kind of jump from research and teaching to that. But um, during your time in research and academia, has there ever been a time when you sort of wondered, am I in the right place or am I doing the right thing? And is this where I'm meant to be? Uh, and if so how did you sort of come to grips with that? And is there sort of something that you hold on to that reminds you that you're doing the right thing or um, that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing? Yeah, so the the biggest time for me, there have always been times where, you know, you question like, oh, do I belong here? Mm -hmm. I remember doing my qualifying exams in grad school, and that's this essentially academic hazing ritual that you have <laughs> to do before you complete your dissertation, and you write 50 pages worth of material, and then you send it off to the department, and you have to wait for like six weeks to hear whether or not you passed, whether or not you get to still be a grad student. And when I got the email from our area head saying, okay, come and meet with me, I'm gonna give you your results. I remember walking across campus and thinking very explicitly to myself like, okay, well, I'm probably not gonna fail. Um, I'm gonna get a revise and resubmit. So that'll just set me back a year. But if I fail, then I can always go back and work at camp. They really liked me at camp. <laughs> like th this idea yeah. of, you know, I have other options, I swear. Yeah. But sort of the biggest moment of questioning for me was my final year in grad school. And that um, holiday between Christmas and New Year's, my youngest brother died by suicide. And it was completely unexpected. So among all of the other sort of trauma processes, because losing a family member is, is usually traumatic for people, because I was in graduate school and in a psychology program and doing research, I had several moments of thinking, oh, is this what I should be doing? Should I be studying suicide? Should I be studying uh, mental health, focusing on that? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I did decide to stick with working with individuals with intellectual developmental disabilities and their families, which then led me here to Virginia Tech where I focus on all disability. So it's it's been an interesting, I don't even know what shape path that mm -hmm. would be, but okay, I was focused on individuals with intellectual developmental disabilities, and then um, my brother died by suicide, and then I stayed with intellectual developmental disabilities, and I still work with people with intellectual developmental disabilities, but through coming here and teaching about all disability, I've now had more opportunity to study psychiatric disability and mental health and mental illness and suicidal thoughts and behavior in some of my studies. Mm -hmm. So it's still not my sort of primary goal, but it's something that I do. And I kind of, you know, like elbow my brother and be like, okay, fine, like you got you know, yeah. you, you had your influence on me, big jerk. You know. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's sort of uh, the biggest 
the biggest questioning moment that I had. Okay. Um, so that kind of goes into your personal experience a little bit. So we'll just, we'll jump back in there and we'll, uh, I'll ask you for, for this section, for this part, I kind of want to go a little bit less off of my questions and more let you guide the conversation a little bit. Um, cause it is your experience. So that being said, I would love for you just to go ahead and share your sort of version of your disability journey as, as much as you're comfortable with or as little as you're comfortable with. Um, and then we'll just, we'll talk about it and go from there and, and, and unpack that a little bit. And, um, to see what's there. So go ahead and just share what you um, what you want. Yeah, so my, like I said, my first experience growing up with disability was with my Uncle Dan. And that's, that's a little different because Down syndrome is sort of, quote unquote, an obvious disability. Like everybody agrees that's a disability. You can look at Uncle Dan, you can see that he has the uh, facial physiology, the, the bodily physiology of somebody with Down syndrome. So you can look at him and categorize him as disabled. That in society doesn't always happen with psychiatric disability or mental illness. But my family has a lot of spirit of experience with psychiatric disability. My dad's family in particular, my biological dad, there's a lot of psychiatric disability and mental illness on that side of the family that isn't always acknowledged and or managed. So that was something growing up that my biological siblings and I didn't fully understand. Even though my mom tried to like explain it to us, like, no, it's it's an illness, it's something, you know, how, how you try to explain those things to children. But we really didn't understand. And even in, grad school, in college and grad school, when I had more exposure to individuals with psychiatric disability, um, you know, classmates taking a semester off for mental health reasons, things like that, I still didn't have a ton of understanding and I still didn't classify mental illness as disability. Mm -hmm. And then when I was 26 and my brother was 21, Yes, I was 26. Um, my brother died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And it was like totally unexpected. Like I had just been talking to him on the phone that night. Mm -hmm. And going through that with my family, when we had this sort of prior introduction to mental illness was still very, very jarring isn't the right word but it was it was so traumatizing and yet it wasn't until i started looking into disability studies as a field to be able to be prepared for teaching it mm -hmm. that i started to recognize the conceptualization of psychiatric disability as disability mm -hmm. now as for my own experience i have also had clinical depression mm -hmm. it, but for me that looked like rage mm -hmm. which doesn't get talked about a lot you think depression you think oh like I'm, I'm sad i can't get out of bed i'm lethargic blah 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 yeah mine was just rage like there's no other word for it i just i hated everyone and everything i would be 20 minutes into a mental rant against someone or something 
before I even realized what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So going to therapy and going on medication was very, very helpful for me and being able to recognize that. And my family history with that was also helpful. My family history combined with education Mm -hmm. because then I could see like, okay, this isn't what I want to feel like. And there are avenues I can explore to not feel like this. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that because why would you want to feel like this? Why would you want to be enraged all the time? No doubt. Like you, you don't. I don't, I don't think you do. I didn't. So, so yeah, that's sort of my personal experience, which is interesting to talk about as a disability because I don't know that I or anyone in my family would identify as part of the disability community. Mm -hmm. Like we wouldn't, there's still that distinction however Mm -hmm. false it may be between individuals with physical or intellectual disabilities and individuals with psychiatric disabilities Mm -hmm. even though they can obviously exist in the same person like they they aren't these siloed categories that okay you get one and then you're done that's it you Mm -hmm. fulfilled your quota um so it's i'm very reluctant especially in the disability studies community Mm -hmm. to identify as disabled or talk about my disability or my experience with disability because it it seems to me to not be enough Mm -hmm. like okay i'm not disabled enough it's not i haven't necessarily experienced the social impact of disability like it's because of the freedom that i have with my job and you know in the rest of my life and with relationships that Mm -hmm. i have I was not societally impaired mm-hmm. with somebody with wouldn't look at you depression. and say, "Hey, she's disabled." Exactly. Like there weren't physical. things that that I couldn't do or was not allowed to do. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of sort of self-exclusion, and I was gener- genuinely miserable, which again, are not mutually exclusive. It's not mm-hmm. like, "Oh, disability is either a personal thing or a societal thing. You can have can both. can be 100% both. Exactly. I just happened to only experience this sort of personal misery. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, I don't, I don't talk about my own quote unquote disability experience that much because to me, there's still, it doesn't quite fall in that Venn diagram mm-hmm. of of what is like capital D disability or something yeah. like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think um, based off of what you shared, I think that there's definitely something to be said for um, that education piece because um, f- one, like you said, a lot of people when they think about depression or anxiety, they don't think disability mm-hmm. because society has conditioned us to think disability and think wheelchair or think disability and think inability to walk or think yep. disability and think a lot of these more visible disabilities um, and society has conditioned us to think depression and associate that with laying in bed all the time or not being able to go out and do things but not so much of rage or being upset or mm-hmm. things like that and so that education piece allowed you to realize that what you were experiencing was in some form a disability but also to recognize that that was something that you were dealing with and that there were options to treat that, quote unquote, or yep. take care of that. Yep. And, and and it was 
because of your education that you were able to um, recognize that that existed, recognize what was going wrong there, and, and that you were, um, when you came to those realizations that I'm ranting about somebody out of rage and why is this happening, like, it was because of your education that you didn't necessarily have before that made you realize that there was something not connecting there. Um, and then also on top of that, like with your family, not necessarily associating with the disability community, a lot of that might have been because prior to your time in college and studying it and everything, you didn't necessarily think of like the mental illness that affected your dad's side of the family as being a disability. So I definitely like, I think that there's something to be said for that education piece because it goes so far into, and I tell people all the time, like the best thing you can do to make a difference is educate yourself. Yes. Because when you educate yourself, you're educating society. Yes. And all it takes is one person. Like going back to the rage issue, if you go online and look up the CESD, which is the Center, Center for Epidemiological Studies Depression uh, Inventory. So it's free online and it is a standardized, very, very frequently used self-assessment for depression. So like if you go to a, a psychologist or a counselor, this these are some of the questions they'll ask you. There is no rage question. Mm -hmm. It is all about um, being tired. Um, there are some questions about suicidality, which is valid and we mm -hmm. should ask about those things. But I, I genuinely, like I went online and took it. So I'm like, okay, how, how bad am I? What am I doing? And then I'm like, where's the rage button where yeah. that's my thing. <laughs> so point of that story is I was then talking to a friend and colleague of mine and I, I shared that story. I said, you know, where is the rage button? And she responded without batting an eye, like, yeah, we do a terrible job as a field in measuring affective disorders, which yeah. depression is a type of. So even having that validation from a fellow professional that like, yeah, you're right. It may, might not be on that list, but what you are feeling and what you're experiencing doesn't have to be something that is felt or experienced and can mm. be something that is managed and helped. Yeah. Um, that was so validating to me. That I was so, so like, okay, yes. They gave you it's an answer. Not just me. Yes. So this education, like you said, that then you can share with other people mm -hmm. is you never know who it's going to help. Yeah. And that's one thing I've noticed too about um, even if you like, if you, uh, so I had a friend freshman year um, who struggled with anxiety and depression things and, and they would go and um, take like the online screening through the counseling mm -hmm. center here and there was always questions about um, suicide mm -hmm. suicide ideology and, and, and um, sorry ideation is the wrong word but yeah. that and, and anxiety and, and have you experienced um, bouts with self-harm and all these questions but again it never asked questions it wasn't comprehensive enough to get the full realm of what depression can be yeah and so I mean, if you were somebody, if you were a student who was dealing with rage and you were about to punch your roommate, but it never asked about that on there. So you could nope. completely be left alone and they say, oh no, you're fine. You're, you're not at risk, but you could really be at risk Absolutely. because those assessments aren't always, uh, I guess, comprehensive enough. Yep. So, um, yeah, no, I, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so kind of moving on a little bit, I, I have just a couple, um, we're kind of getting close to the end. I have a couple okay. general sort of questions about yeah. disabilities in general. Um, so a lot of people, and by a lot of people, I mean virtually all people, are very uneducated about disabilities, which we were just talking about, the education piece. Um, what constitutes a disability, disability culture, any of it. For example, even as someone with a disability before college, I thought that I knew a lot, when in reality, I only knew a lot, a little bit, and it was all about my experience exclusively. So this, in part because it's really not taught in public schools, 
Um, I never learned about the disability rights movement or anything remotely close to it. The most we talked about about disability was like a bullet point on a one PowerPoint slide during one random history class where we uh, where it mentioned that Helen Keller was deaf and blind. And it just that's kind of it. That's all we ever learned yep. about the history of disability or anything about disabilities. Um, so why do you think that disabilities studies seems to be such an avoided topic and why we don't learn about it more? Yeah. So, so there are a few reasons. And overall, it's that people are very uncomfortable with disability. Mm -hmm. um, almost similar to how people are very uncomfortable with death. Like, we don't talk about it in an educational setting. We see disability as the opposite of health, which it's not, but that's how it's categorized. That's what we're taught. So when we're talking about health and disability and something that we don't want, then it becomes this very personal taboo thing. Like, no, 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 you don't, you don't ask, you don't talk about these things. We t it's, it's hushed tones. It's whispered you know behind closed doors so it's not something that is talked about comfortably in education or in general in society yeah that makes sense because i just know even even once and the the world of difference has been since i got into college because in college we talk about it i feel like every single class we talk about um, like it, we always open it up with in this class, we're going to talk about this, this, and this. You've probably never talked about it before, but we're going to touch on it because it's important and it's real. And it's, but in high school, I feel like in, in public school in general, it was always like, it felt like it reminded me of like when you, when you had like your health curriculum and you taught, you had PE, but then you had health and you would talk about like, there'd be this whole section on family life or essentially what we know as sex ed. Yep. And they would always be. You have to take this form home and get your parents to sign off on it before we even mention sex in this class. And like, you have to do all these things. And it just created this big taboo around this topic. But then when you get to college, they're just like, let's talk about it. We need to learn about it. So, and so like the world of differences comes since I've been in college. It's the same thing with disabilities. It's yep. like, why should we hide these things? They're facts of life. They're part of who people are. Um, they're part of like my, like my disability is part of my story. And growing up, I like, not so much at home, but like at school, it was always just like, um, I feel like a lot of people were sort of coached by public schooling to pass and to, to hide their disability. And, and well, we don't have to submit, we don't have to put you in the very front seat if you don't want people to know that you can't see the board. I'm yes. like, I want people to know because then they can help me more. Yep. So it's just like, it was this always this thing of how can we hide it instead of how can we educate people about it? Exactly. And if we don't teach it in history, we don't teach the history of it, then we don't have to talk about the here and now of it. Yep. So it was kind of, um, and, and even when we talked about Helen Keller, for example, they would say Helen Keller was deaf and she was blind. And you'd have kids going, oh my gosh, no way, yada, yada. All right, next slide, let's talk about the Civil exactly. War or something. And that's it. And that's the only person. Like even other historical figures who you talk about, you don't talk about their disability. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about Harriet Tubman's disability. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about... Um, Albert Einstein's disability mm -hmm. like it's 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 okay, like an that's aspect one of person. thing people yeah yes exactly like okay we can talk about Helen Keller and we can only talk about her because there was a miracle like the play is literally called the miracle worker mm -hmm. um with Annie Sullivan her teacher and really the miracle was that that Annie Sullivan and and Helen Keller didn't didn't pay attention to what society was saying mm -hmm. which is that Helen is unteachable. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. She said, you say she's unteachable. Bet. Watch me. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so how do you think that we can cause a sort of a societal shift toward being more comfortable teaching these things earlier? Um, so in short, based on your experience, how do you propose we normalize the conversation? Yeah, this is, this is sort of a cyclical argument because like the answer is you do it more. Mm -hmm. And and at, at the risk of sounding uh, very out of touch and very curmudgeonly, I think your generation and younger generations are doing a great job of just talking about differences more mm -hmm. and and sharing them and putting them out there. So be it on TikTok or on YouTube or in uh, real life, in everyday conversation, mm -hmm. in person, people mention these things and they discuss them. And the more people are exposed to these things, the more likely they are to become comfortable with it or the mm -hmm. at the very least not be repulsed by it mm -hmm. so it's it's slow and that's not all we need to do for full inclusion mm -hmm. but conversation is a very important first step yep every little step counts exactly okay so there are a lot of people out there who look at people with disabilities as lesser citizens or people who even think that people with disabilities are just not competent and should just rely on other people to help them and should just give into societal norms and ultimately um, try to silence our voices by always thinking we need represented by somebody else and, and all of these sorts of things. So what do you say to those people? What I would say to those people probably isn't appropriate for a podcast. <laughs> we can mark it um, explicit. <laughs> right, like with a little E on there. Yeah. I, I would say some four-letter words. Like I'm not a super diplomatic person. Mm -hmm. Um, but if I had all the time and the patience in the world, I would really try to talk them through it. Like, mm -hmm. okay, what are your beliefs? First of all, what is and is not a disability? Like, where do you draw that line? Because if it's dichotomous, if it's disability or non-disability, where is that line exactly? Mm -hmm. And then what are these societal norms that are expected? Okay, why are those norms and these are not norms? Mm -hmm. What are the causes for potentially violating those norms? You would say like, oh, okay, well, laws. Okay, well, well, what about laws? Like there are laws for speed limit. Does that mean that you never go above the speed limit? Mm -hmm. Probably not. I'd like to think that most people <laughs> go above the speed limit. Maybe not by as much as I do. Um, <laughs> But, okay, well, if you go over the speed limit, then you are violating that law and that norm. Why is that okay? Um, and then why inability or lack of desire to conform to these societal norms constitutes incompetence? Mm -hmm. Like, what are the combinations? So if I had, again, all the time and the patience in the world, I would try to guide people through this so that they see that all of these so-called lines between these false ideas of normal and disabled are pretty much arbitrary mm -hmm. and there there are plenty of behaviors that we should not accept in society but there are plenty of behaviors that shouldn't be acceptable that we accept all the time in society mm -hmm. or that aren't that have no consequences with them so who makes these decisions who gets to decide who participates and who doesn't mm -hmm. um and correct me if i'm wrong in saying this but my like my observation has been like having you in class and then working with your class again um like your lack of patience or lack of ability to sit down and talk to people about it doesn't isn't just naturally occurring but it's when you have people who don't care or like openly like are like oh you're you're disabled just shut up just go do whatever like it's not your lack of patience isn't with people because you do a great job of teaching us about it that care about Thank it you. 
But the lack of patience comes when people don't have an open mind and don't want to learn. Yes. And people are stubborn and set in their ways. And um, I'll just stop talking so I get myself in trouble. But um, when your lack of patience comes with those people. But when, yes. from what I've seen, like only getting through one slide in an entire hour, 15 <laughs> minutes, that takes the patience. One but slide. you're you're open to doing it because we care and we want to learn. And exactly. so you have all the patience in the world for that. Well, so, so what I say is ignorance is not the problem because mm -hmm. ignorance is just not knowing something. Mm -hmm. And there's an infinite amount of information that we all don't know. Mm -hmm. It's willful ignorance, deliberate mm -hmm. ignorance that's the problem. So when people are presented with the information and choose not to engage with it or choose not to believe it. That's where, uh, that's where my patience just doesn't doesn't go. It's not that it runs out. It's just that I it just never was there in the first place. Yeah. If you're gonna choose not to care to learn, I'm gonna yep. choose not to have patience yep, with you. Exactly. So yeah, that's that's completely fair. Um, so we've talked about a lot today. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add to the conversation we've had? Um, any words of advice or wisdom that you'd like to impart to our audience? I, I mean, I would say, like, don't listen to me. And what I mean by that is don't listen to just me. I am just one person. I offer one perspective in both this podcast and in the disability world and the world as a whole. I do think my perspective can be useful to some in constructing an inclusive worldview, but it sure as hell shouldn't be the only perspective that you use to construct your worldview witness other perspectives, be thoughtful, use critical thinking, be open to experiences that you haven't had, and to the best of your ability, keep searching out those experiences so you can keep learning. Gotcha. Okay. Um, well, I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk today and um, being a part of this and helping to, to normalize the conversation. I hope we'll let everybody um, gets as much out of this conversation as I did for sure. Um, but before we go, as promised, we have a special segment. Um, our, this will be our third segment of rapid fire questions. So I have 10 questions for you. And just so the audience knows, you have not seen any of them. Nope. Um, the goal is for you to answer these as quickly as you can, um, as little thought as possible. So whatever comes to your mind. Okay. And this is just a chance for everybody to get to know you a little bit more okay. um, without, outside of just what we've talked about. Okay. Right. So, all right, we are ready to go then. So ready, set, above all others, what is one memory that sticks out to you from your undergrad experience? What is one thing you'll never forget? Oh my goodness. Uh, Time-wise, I'm going to say the first snowball fight my freshman year on North Quad, where it seemed like everybody who lived in all of those dorms was out at night throwing snowballs at each other. Okay. You teach and research at Virginia Tech. Do you prefer orange or maroon? Maroon. Mm, same. In your words, what's a hokey? <laughs> a hokey is a made-up word. <laughs> the, the correct answer is I, I am. am. <laughs> I know that's the right answer, not my answer. What's one time in your career that you have stuck your foot in your mouth, so to speak? If you could eat... Wait, sorry. Yeah. That you stuck your foot in your mouth in your career. Constantly. <laughs> um, okay, one time... Oh, gosh. Okay, my very first project that I worked on in grad school... I was doing these analyses and my advisor had me run these new analyses and I did them but then I looked at the completely wrong numbers and I gave her those as if they were the results that we were looking for and they were not and and it like changed the whole results of our study because I was looking at the wrong numbers so then huh. she took it to her advisor and it ended up wasting everybody's time oh yeah so that <laughs> one that was bad okay 
Um, you know, when I wrote that question, I was thinking about the experience you told us about when you asked uh, something about, can anybody lift so much weight? And the football player, the big offensive lineman said, well, I can. Oh, I can. Yeah, yeah. I was I was trying to use deadlifting 500 pounds as an example of something that would disable everybody in this kid's bag. like, I can do it. Right. Right. That's funny. Um, if you could eat one kind of food only for the rest of your life, what would it be? My mom's broccoli soup. Okay. Broccoli cheddar or just broccoli? Uh, it is technically broccoli cheddar. We just always called it broccoli soup. Okay. It's, a, it's a cream of uh, broccoli. Broccoli cheddar is my absolute favorite. Yeah. How many pets did you have growing up? Oh gosh, we constantly had uh, different cats. The one that was mine was Summer, and I got him for my 10th birthday. Aww. If Virginia Tech and Notre Dame are playing a sport against one another, who are you cheering for, or are you even watching? I'm 100% watching. My answer to this question is, I am hoping that my students, so any students that I have on that particular team for Virginia Tech, I hope they have their best game of their lives. I hope they break every record for their position. And I hope Virginia Tech loses to Notre Dame. Ugh, you knew I was going to ask you I that did. question. Okay, what's your biggest pet peeve? Oh, again, there's so many. Um, oh, it's stereotypical. Slow drivers in the left lane. <laughs> biggest lesson you've learned in your life? Biggest lesson I've learned in my life, um, know thyself. I think self-awareness goes a really, really long way. Okay. That's a, that's a really good answer. Um, all right, this last question is inspired by Brene Brown, and she asked this almost to every guest she has. Um, what's on your nightstand? What's on my nightstand? Um, currently, my my glasses case and my glasses and my, my contact case and um, my, a, a book that my best friend got me for Christmas that is called The uh, Little Guide to Feminist Saints. So it's a hundred uh, women throughout history and just little biographies of each of them. Gotcha. Okay. Well, cool. Um, that is all the questions I had. Okay. Um, I do want to point out that um, a week or two ago, Virginia Tech played Notre Dame in basketball. Oh, and I'll just them. I'll let you guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you probably watched it. No, my, no, my Braves team's crap this year. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, just had to throw that in there. But um, yeah, thank you for being a part of the episode. And um, um, yeah, that is that is all that I have. So um, right. hope that, that you enjoyed this experience as much as I did. Yes, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Disability Perspectives podcast. Please share us with your friends and across your social media accounts so that we can all work together to normalize the conversation. Again, you can find the Disability Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes will be released every other Wednesday. Thank you again to Scotty Larson and Paulina Sobel for all of their hard work behind the scenes that makes this podcast possible. Additionally, the podcast has gained a new team member. Morgan Rader has joined our team and is going to be working with us to do some neat new things with the podcast. Thank you, Morgan, Scotty, and Paulina for all of your hard work. Until next time, we hope you will continue seeking to learn more and to expand your perspective. Until next time.